Good morning. How was your week? Uh, how was it for you this week? Uh, what kind of feelings did you go through uh, what, when uh, these responses happened? I've uh, talked to a number of people, encountered a lot of stress about what was going on. Uh, in the responses to the killings of Ahmed Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. How are we to understand these things? I, th I find that the greatest stress that I'm encountering is, is uh, often people not knowing how to think about what's going on. Like what exactly is going on? And people not sure about it because there seem to be different things going on or different interpretations of things going on, uh, different events. What is it that's happening in America? Is it protesting? Is it rioting? And, and how are we to understand this? Uh, well, I want to help us this morning with a word of interpretation. And to do that, I want to go to one of the, what many scholars consider one of the oldest pieces of writing uh, in the Old Testament. And that is the Song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5. And Deborah has some insights for our situation I think, because even though this is supposedly ancient, ancient writing, and they think that because uh, the Hebrew is very archaic, it's, parts of it are difficult to read. Uh, so it just seems like it's a, it's, a, it's a song that's preserved from this very earlier period of history in the second millennium BC. And even though it's so old, it has a very modern problem that it's, that it's talking about, and that is the problem of socioeconomic division among people. Um, and it bears on uh, how we think about what's going on in America today because our race problem is very much a socioeconomic problem. The issue is uh, very much, the race issue is very much an issue of uh, economic and status uh, as well. In both cases, uh, there needs to be an interpretation. That's why what's, what's marvelous about Judges 5 is it's actually an interpretation of the events of the previous chapter in Judges 4. You've got this area where the Judges 4 is a straight narrative of some events that happened in ancient Canaan. And then Judges 5 is a song about it uh, where Deborah brings an interpretation. Why? Because the people at the time needed to know what was going on. They said this... All these things have happened. A lot of things happened in Judges 4. What exactly does it mean? And what, what are we supposed to think about it? How are we supposed to respond? So Judges 5 is that interpretation very much needed in the same way that I think what's very much needed now here on Sunday is an interpretation of what's happened in this past week, both for 21st century America and second millennium B.C., Canaan, uh, that's what we need. And by the way, if you want to talk more about this after the service, after the sermon, after the service, we're going to have a time of Q&A here. And the, where you go to, to be, take part in that Q&A is on the screen right now. For those of you who have further questions, you want to bring it up, that's what we like to do around here. Uh, we don't like to give a word and run away. We want to talk to you about it and hear from you. So if you have further questions or further comments about what you're hearing this morning, uh, take note of that right now. And, and after the service, we'll be there for a little while to do that Q&A. So before we read the passage, 
that uh, I'm talking about. I want to give you a little context for the book of Judges. We're talking about a time actually of great oppression in the beginning of the Iron Age. So uh, 1100s or uh, 1200s, it's conventionally dated. The beginning of the Iron Age, uh, in this time, you have these people living in the land, the Israelites, in different parts of the land. But they weren't in charge. And they were often ruling powers that were there that were oppressing the Israelites. That's the words that's used in Judges 2 to describe what was going on. These rulers were oppressing the Israelites. And that word is actually used throughout the book for different people in different places. The Amorites, uh, the Egyptians who were in charge of a certain area, the Ammonites. And here in this situation, chapter 4, beginning of chapter 4, it says the Canaanites were there and were oppressing the Israelites. And the word that's used in Hebrew is lachatz, which uh, doesn't just mean that people are, you know, some people are on top, other people are below, but lachatz means pressing, being pressed into a corner. So if, you, if, if you're being oppressed in this way, it's like you're being pushed into a corner in which you have no way out. And your lives are repeatedly shattered. Uh, there's poverty, and there's no way to get out of that poverty as well. People couldn't emerge because there were systems in place that were working against that. Uh, and that's what we're, they were talking about here. And, and we'll see as we begin to read this passage, Deborah begins to describe this situation in verses 6 and 7. And she says, you know, this is the way it was like in Israel at that time, in Canaan, where they were living. Not, it wasn't yet called Israel. But in Canaan, she said, you know, people couldn't travel. People actually couldn't even travel. They'd go out because they would lose what they had if they traveled, if they tried to travel. And so people stayed in. And she said, it was, it's the villagers cease to be. It's a kind of uh, interesting way to put it. It's as if the people, the villagers, weren't even there. It's that this certain group of people didn't even exist. So that's what she's describing, a very tough situation. And it's one of the reasons why God had sanctioned war for them at this time. You read through the book of Judges and you wonder, why is there, you know, these battles and this war and it's, it's because God had a program for this land to overturn the systems of oppressive rule and to replace it with just and righteous rule in this land. And so he, for this time period, very definite time, very definite, definite place, said that he did sanction, sanction war to happen. And it's not something that he's doing today. It's very clear. The rest of the Bible makes clear. This is not something that he is doing uh, in our times. But what happens here in Judges 4 is a great victory against oppression. And that's a great thing that's going on. And, and that's a, a big part of the narrative is that there's this great victory. At the same time, there's something that also is bad about what's going on. There's something that's not happening that should be happening. And that's what we're going to read about. So join me now as I read from chapter 5 of the book of Judges. And again, as I say, we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read two uh, sections of it for time. But I encourage you to read the whole chapter, actually chapter 4 and chapter 5, to get uh, the, the whole complete story. But we're going to read beginning in verse 6. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV version. You can follow along on the screen if you want or in your Bible. Judges chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. 
In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose, I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord. And then down to verse 13. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley. Following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah. Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came. They fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan. At Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, if we continued to read on in the chapter from verse 19, we would hear about the great victory uh, for the Israelites that they actually accomplished this great overturning of the system that allowed oppression to end in a large degree. But what I focused on here in these verses is that Deborah is pointing out that there is something else that was going on that was not good. And this is the first insight that I think we can learn from for our situation today from Deborah that there could be some things that are very good that are going on and then there could be some bad things that are going on at the same time together. And that's what was going on, she says, in Israel. There were things that were going on there that were not good as well as the things that were going on good. I would say today I would offer that interpretation for our week as well. There are layers of things that have been going on and some of them have been very good. So in response uh, to these killings and people have had protests, which is a good thing to, to express grief, to ask the question, um, are there systems in place that cause oppression? Could we be more just uh, in our society? And it's very important to be able to try to talk, to, talk about these things um, and to bring them up and as people talk to each other, it's very important to hear personal 
experiences and anecdotes which have been happening. Very important as, as people talk to have both those personal experiences in the conversation as well as very real statistics that allow us to step back and say, what actually is going on? <clears throat> Get the lay of the land. And, and in, in addition to the personal experiences, what's going on on a large scale, uh, understanding these things through real statistics. And we need to listen. We need to listen to uh, both a significant portion of our population, which is African-American, as well as the, some 800,000 policemen who regularly risk their lives in the line of duty, to hear those voices as well and to hear. And even to allow, which seems to be happening as well, the conversation move beyond kind of issues of the use of force or unjust use of force and brutality to more issues of implicit bias in our society and ask the question, are there, are there attitudes that people have to people of color that should be examined and corrected? Is there something for us to learn and move forward with? All of this, all of this is very good. And can we understand that these are very good things? At the same time, there are layers of things that might be going on as well on top of that. So that why these are good things, there could also be a layer of people who are taking the, taking the opportunity of the protests to, to organize for violence and chaos when the sun goes down. And that if this is going on, that's evil. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing that's going on. And, in, and another layer, you know, the different layers on top of this, of people, of those who are taking advantage of the chaos to loot and to pillage. That's evil. That's a bad thing, harming usually, most of all, the very communities that are already disadvantaged uh, to inflict more poverty upon them. So can we understand that good things could be going on and bad things at the same time? This is the first insight that I draw from Deborah that I think is really helpful to us in our situation. And you know what? Um, this is very often the case, actually. If, if we look at a situation and say, you know, there could be good things going on to cleanse the land of oppression and bad things going on, even currently in America. That usually is the way things that happen. You should know that. You know, when some very good things are happening, very often especially as very good things are happening, evil is close at hand. So let's move then to Deborah's second insight for us. Um, and it comes in the, in the form of her question, what was wrong according to Deborah? And to understand that, we, we need to understand that the Israelites... Uh, the, the nation to be, the kingdom that God was building, was actually comprised of 12 different tribes. And we tend to hear that phrase and we think, oh, well, they're one together, the 12 tribes of Israel. But they weren't, actually. They were very separate kind of individual entities and even individual economies that they had as they grew and became these different people. What, uh, what we have for you here is a map that shows you where the different tribes of Israel were located in the land of Canaan. When they, when they came into the land, they were occupying it. This is where they were living. 
And, uh, you know, the Levites, uh, Levites are not on there because they were a special case. But the other 11 tribes are on there. And you see Dan twice because Dan was supposed to be living down on the coast. But uh, the tribe of Dan was not successful in living there. And so they bounced around a bit before they ended up that place in the north. And, and before they ended up in north, they were employed on the ships along the coast. That's what was happening with, with uh, the tribe of Dan. And so these different places were parceled out to give them different areas to live. Uh, and it's interesting that um, this is affirmed and confirmed by archaeologists when they look at this time period, what they see is that there was, a, there was a massive increase in population in the land of Canaan, especially in the hill country. Uh, there were these, uh, the way they tell is that there there's these terraced farms that started appearing where there was nothing before, right around this time. And that indicates that all through the hill country, the mountainous region, some of the Shvehla and the, the, the parts of the area that were, were hilly and, and mountainous, um, there are these terraced farms that show up. And, and by that, we understand there was this huge influx of the population in the land of Canaan. It's pretty easy to see that these were the Israelites coming in. And uh, you could see the tribes that are located in these hilly areas on the map, um, if we could bring that up again. What's also important to know is where this conflict happened that's described in Judges 4. So you see these different tribes in different areas. And I've drawn a circle there, kind of orange, red-orange there, to show you that this conflict happened in the Valley of Jezreel. Like so many of the, of the conflicts and the wars of, in the history of Israel happened in the Valley of Jezreel. And this was on the eastern side, the battle with, with Jobin. But it wasn't just Jobin, uh, the king of Canaan. There were all these other kings that got involved. So it actually was something that involved the whole land. The conflict was something that called for action, really, on the part of all the tribes. And that's why Deborah and Barak, in verse 13, call uh, for the remnant of the noble to come. By the remnant of the noble, they mean the other tribes. Uh, you see this conflict happening right over Issachar, right? So obviously they were going to show up. But these other tribes were, were called to come as well. And to not be isolated. And they are um, Issachar, verse 15. There I'm looking at Issachar comes, obviously. Because they were right there. And, but also, verse 14, Ephraim and Makur. It's another name for Manasseh. Along with Benjamin. That is the, the tribes of, of uh, who were the children of Rachel. And then verse 18, Zebulun and Naphtali risked their lives in coming. But there were four tribes that did not come, that actually kind of isolated themselves from this conflict. And here we have them in kind of green um, uh, squares here to show. Uh, they're named here by Deborah. Reuben and Gad uh, did not come. Verse 15, it says that, Reuben had great searchings of the heart. So it, it's, it's like Reuben is sitting there. Should I come? Maybe I come. Thinks about coming and then says, nah, not going to go. <laughs> so 
So, so Reuben stays with the sheepfolds. Uh, and Gilead, verse 17, a kind of another name for Gad, stays with the sheep. As well, verse 17, Asher stays, sits still at the coast. Um, and then Dan stayed with the ships. And Deborah asks, why did Dan stay with the ships? So why did these four tribes remain isolated and not come to this overturning of oppression that was happening in the land? This kind of key moment for the history of the land. Why did these four tribes stay away? Well, it might be difficult for us to see with the cultural distance that we have um, <clears throat> so far away in time and place from this, this, this specific uh, time in history. But in 1989, Lawrence Steger of Harvard University uh, wrote, what I think, a seminal paper in analyzing the, the economics of the situation of the different tribes at that time. And what he showed is that these tribes that, that, that kind of were populating the hill country, they were agriculturalists. They farmed the land and they had pretty much what they need. So they were independent. But Reuben and Gad were not farmers. They were shepherds, as we can tell from this passage. They were herders. So their economy was based on kind of a specialized pastoralism. And that meant they depended on trade. Who did they trade with? The Canaanites. The Canaanites were actually their trading partners. And that's why they were sitting beside the sheepfolds thinking about whether they should really come or not. They decided, you know, these ties are too important. In Judges 1, we learn that Asher was actually dwelling with the Canaanites. And like Dan, who was serving on ships, their income sort of depended on maritime trade. Again, they're kind of embedded in the system. And they found that the ties there were stronger for them than the ones of the kingdom that God was calling them to. And so you see, friends, the reason that some did not respond and instead kind of isolated themselves from what was going on, the reason came down to money, right? Follow the money, which is what Deborah is encouraging us to do. That is, these economic ties, because of what made their lives comfortable economically, they, they remained isolated from this effort to overturn the oppression of the time. They had much more to lose. And so you can see Reuben sitting there by his, by his sheepfold saying, you know, this is not my call. You know, you had Gad and you had Asher saying, you know, I, I need to focus on another part of the kingdom right now. This doesn't really concern me. So they remained kind of in their isolated state instead of coming to unify because they were kind of embedded in the system uh, of the Canaanites, dependent on it. And this is uh, kind of a second insight that's very important from Deborah. And that is you always follow the money. You know, the privileged are also always in a place of being tempted to isolate themselves from the poor, from the underprivileged. That's the way of the world. It's the way of wealth. Wealth always creates a distance between people. And so in this case, in ancient Canaan, the socioeconomic tribalism trumped the identification with the other people of God. 
And you can see how it would function even today, 21st century America, how there might be the comfortable who are in such a position as to say, well, you know, not really my call to address this or to think about this or to be involved in this. It's easy, it's easy to isolate. So what's needed and what Deborah is calling the tribes to is a connection. So you actually need to realize your connection. You need to come together, be able to have conversation, realize your different situations. And that's what she's calling for, a conversation with both sides listening. Because, you know, a conversation, both sides need to listen. And that's what she's calling for here. And if they had come together, there actually would have been a great solution to some of these things where the trade that, that the pastoral folks, the shepherds were dependent upon, could have continued with the hill country, with the people of the hill country. There were plenty of them. And there could have been solutions like that arose out of the connection. But they needed to have that conversation. And, you know, what, what I'm saying here is not a really big, deep spiritual truth. You know, that there's a need to listen, that there's a need to, to have conversation, to come together and to be open to that. I mean, that came up even in our live stream this past Thursday night where we had Chester County Commissioner Marian Moskowitz come on. She talked about the need for people to come to the table and to be able to have conversation. It's not, it's not a deep point. It's, it's kind of, we all kind of realize it's necessary. But here's the question, friends. What is it that actually creates conversation that moves forward? And moves people from different socioeconomic positions together to be able to co cooperate together. What is it that actually does that? And, it's, and the answer is trust. You have to have a conversation in which there's trust between the parties. And that's pretty rare in our national media right now. I don't see that happening uh, in a large degree in our national media right now where there's actual, actual trusting conversation, conversation where people can realize uh, they are the same they, by, by what they have in common. And the reason is because so, so much of what Americans had in common has broken down, that there's not this common ground on which people can come. So there isn't this trust. And I don't see it in, I don't see it in social media. Very rare as well. And here's where we come to Deborah's brilliant point. Because what she gives us actually in her interpretation of these events combating oppression in that time is the most powerful unifier of people that you will ever find. And she gives it to us actually in verse 11. She describes way, the way that the tribes of Israel were to come together. And the way that they were to come together, she said, Verse 11 is by, quote, repeating the righteous triumphs of the Lord, unquote. Repeating the righteous triumphs of the Lord. So what she was saying is that actually the way that these tribes were going to overcome the isolationism that's created by different socioeconomic circumstances is by recognizing their common redemption. That they had a common redemption that they shared. And the only way they were going to come together for Israel, the only way, is to recognize what God had done for them, for all of them. So they were to look back and repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord. What's she talking about? Repeat what? Well, she was saying, look all the way back on what made you the 12 tribes. And that is, God rescued you all from oppression. 
and he did it back in Egypt. So it's recounting the deliverance from Egypt. It's recounting the crossing, recounting that, that rescue. And part of their difficulty is that now it was a few generations, was getting to be a few generations removed from those events by which they could come together. Because it wasn't just them. It wasn't just their parents. Even now, it's, we're talking about maybe the grandchildren here of the, of the people to whom these things had happened by which they could be unified. The breaking of that oppression. But this is the way Deborah says it's got to happen. It's, it's going to happen and it is the most powerful way in which people are unified is when they realize they've been rescued from the same thing. And, you know, it's still the case today, only what we have in the church of Jesus Christ is a common rescue in what God has done for us in Christ. And this, friends, you can see it in history, how powerful a unifier it is. This is what brings people together in a way that nothing else really can or does. You can see it, for example, in how Christ's righteous triumph united people and how it functioned in South Africa during apartheid. And you remember that that was happening in the, and, and people were becoming aware of it, especially in the latter half of the 20th century. And as you look at what happened and what brought down apartheid, um, you'll see different explanations. But what was key was, you'll, you probably know the name Desmond Tutu, was the, the church's understanding of bringing people together there and what happened. Well, you, what you may not know, you may not know the name Michael Cassidy, but he was a preacher in South Africa who saw the problem very early on. And he understood this need for connection and he understood how it was possible through what Christ had done for the people. And so what he did, this is Michael Cassidy, is he arranged this kind of exchange programs where he took white evangelicals and he brought them to live for a week with Christians in the black townships of South Africa. He did this in the 1970s. He did this in the 1980s. Apartheid fell in the early 1990s. And this was a key point of it because this is what was actually changing the cultural mindset, changing the understanding of the people. And what was it? It was people who were able to come together and trust and listen because of the righteous triumphs of Christ for all of them. That's what made it possible. He tells them a story about it in his book, This Passing Summer. It's a great read. And that's a situation of a racial problem that is, was much worse than what we have in 21st century America. So you can see how Deborah is doing this even in this passage, she's actually speaking to both sides of the economic line. You can see it in verse 10. She says, you know, we're going to sing about this. And who's going to sing about it, she says. She says, the people riding on, don on the white donkeys. And that's very significant because the white female donkey was preferred as the mode of travel for people of means. <laughs> okay, and if you had a white donkey, not just an ordinary gray donkey, if you had a white female donkey, it told people who you were. You were someone, you know. 
It's kind of like riding a, you know, if you drive a Ferrari, you know, or a, um, some kind of BMW, it would tell people you're in a certain place, you know. So if you're riding this white donkey, and what they would do is they take these kind of elaborate saddle blankets. And so you'd have these luxurious saddle blankets sitting on these white donkeys. And if you showed up <coughs> on, a, on one of these donkeys, it just told people who you were. So you see, folks, some things don't really change. Status is always, then and now, what you ride and what you're, what you're riding on. So if it's a Peloton, you know, or if it's a Tesla, a Tesla, you know, or it's a white donkey, <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> the mode changes, but uh, what you ride doesn't change. So, so Deborah says, those people need to be singing this song. Those people especially need to be singing song and the people who are walking, she says in verse 10. So you see, it's those who are walking and those who are riding on white donkeys as well together. They need to be together repeating the righteous triumphs of the Lord. You see what she's saying. This is the same thing that can unite both the walkers and the wealthy as well. And only Christ's salvation, from what I've seen, is deep enough and powerful enough to really put people on the same level. To really help people realize they're on the same level and to end this temptation to isolation that happens. And it has to be in the context of trusting relationships. This is what creates the trust between people. You know, if you want to see a great example of this, you can look up uh, the live stream that was done this week by our denomination, the PCA. The MA, Mission in North America organization of the PCA. They put it on a live stream. They said, you know, we want to. We want to um, address racial brokenness. And the reason it's significant is that these leaders who got together said, we're going we're gonna to address racial brokenness. And so we're going to call up the people of color in our denomination, the leaders. We're going to get them on a panel together. We're going we're gonna to ask them what we need to do. We're going to talk about it. And then the, it starts, and actually some of the people who are supposed to be there on the panel aren't there. And the whole first part of the live stream is these two leaders repenting of how they went about forming this panel. Because they actually called up, you know, their brothers and they said, come on, you know, let's do this panel. And, and, and the African-American leaders in the domination were like, whoa, excuse me. How about, how are you, brother? <laughs> how about asking how we're doing? How about trying to find out what we're dealing with this week? And these people who are organizing the panel for uh, people of color realizing, realized they weren't consulting people of color in the formation of the panel. So the first whole part of the, the broadcast is these people repenting um, uh, and kind of confessing what they did. And they said, you know, we really didn't do this right the way we wanted to do this panel on racial brokenness. Uh, we didn't proceed it in the right way. And it was kind of, you know, it was, it was funny, but it was, it was actually quite moving. What is that? <laughs> what is going on there? It's the kind of thing that only happens around what Christ has done. So this is what I want to call us to today. As you look back on the week and you interpret what's going on and you interpret your place in it. This is the hope for us and this is the hope that the church can provide for what's going on in America. Because Christ came 
And he came on a donkey, if you recall. And it wasn't a white donkey. He came on an ordinary gray donkey and it wasn't an embroidered or luxurious saddle, saddle blanket that he used. He did use some blankets on his donkey. And he came and at that time united uh, both the privileged and the underprivileged of Jerusalem. And he did it by what he did for us on the cross. So as we come to a close now, let's sing. Let's sing about what he's done. And let us go forth with that in our hearts for the future. Amen.